0: This is a crowd podcast.
2: This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me,
0: Billy Joel.
3: Einstein.
0: What a brain, what a man, what an intellect.
3: What a hairdo. Hello again and welcome to episode 42 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the history podcast that cracks open Billy Joel's rock'em sock'em, action-packed hit song for the most surprising stories of the late 20th century. I'm Katie Puckrick.
0: And I am Tom Fordyce. How
3: did we get to where we are today? Billy thinks it might have something to do with Einstein.
0: Oh, Katie. A familiar topic uh, in one way, because we've all heard of Albert Einstein. But also, when I look at you and I look at me, I don't get science. I get many things. You know, we like words, we like music, we like a bit of dancing around. I'm guessing that science uh, for you played... Quite a small role as it did for me in my education.
3: Uh, the most scientific I ever got was um, like life sciences, perhaps a little experimentation uh, in the basement uh, after school on the beanbag chair. Is that life science or is that just be. being fast? <laughs> uh, I did some experiments with worms and mixing them up in mud. And that that's also like biological. But no, I I'm grasping at straws. I have nothing scientific in my past to share with you what about you
0: yeah um, I've decided in my teens Katie totally foolishly that, that you had to be either into something creative or into maths and science so
3: self limiting I feel like I didn't give myself a chance yeah yeah.
0: so there is stuff about Albert Einstein which um, I wouldn't say it scares me I just don't know where to start the famous equation I don't know what it means oh, I don't yeah, know what it, any of the letters mean
3: it's mumbo jumbo it's like it, it's like a, <laughs> a, a suggested password
0: Yeah, I don't understand a lot of the words that I've seen in the research for this episode. I don't know what quantum physics are. I don't know what wormholes are. I don't understand the general theory of relativity or any specific theories of relativity.
3: I don't understand theories.
0: No. (laughs) Well, thankfully, Katie, this show is not just you and me, because this would be a particularly poor episode. It
3: would be finishing right now. Thanks for listening.
0: See you next time. Instead, Katie, we have a learned and excellent guest, who is David Badanis, the best-selling author of E equals MC squared and Einstein's greatest mistake. Um, He also told us he feels like Einstein is an old friend of his by now. So, David, welcome, and thank goodness you're here. It's a great pleasure to put you guys out of your misery. (laughs) So where do we start here, Kate? Because... If you were to ask me about Einstein, I would come back, David, to a picture that was taken on his 72nd birthday when his hair is white and sticking up like he's had his hands on a Van de Graaff generator. That's my one bit of science fact, oh. Van de Graaff generator. And he's sticking his tongue out like he's Gene Simmons from Kiss. Exactly. Uh,
2: we think of Einstein as this old guy with the big hair and stuff. and But if you go back in time, he was a young countercultural guy. He did all sorts of wild fads, which we now take, uh, we're used to. So when he was a young man, he was into free love. He was into vegetarian food. He was really into women's rights. And he was strongly into support for uh, oppressed people around the world. Uh, He would fit really, really well in Williamsburg, New York, or Shoreditch, East London.
3: Wow, what a young hipster. So I want to know about how Einstein became Einstein, because apparently he was always fascinated by questions of time and space. And apparently at 15, he wanted to know what the world would look like if he were riding his motorcycle at the speed of light. I mean, my God, Tom, at 15, all I wanted to know is, would Studio 54 still be open by the time I was (laughs) old enough to get in? So my concerns were on a little bit of a more basic plane. But what set him apart from the rest of the kids?
2: There's a lot of made-up stories about Einstein, but there's a handful of true documents by people who knew him well. And somebody who knew him really well was his little sister, Maya, and uh, when they, uh, she left a, a memoir of what it was like uh, when they were little. He was a nice guy, Einstein, but occasionally had a temper. And when she was about five and he was about seven, he got upset at her. And he took a thick, heavy rubber ball and threw it at her. And it hit her in the head. And she wrote in her memoir, that shows it takes a thick skull to be the sister of a world-famous physicist. <laughs> so what I love about that, that's the sort of humor. So if you think of Einstein as like an old professor, that's one thing. Think of Mel Brooks doing Jewish-American shtick. <laughs> so think of like German-Jewish Weimar. He, he was happiest in Weimar, Germany in the 1920s. Think of the world of Cabaret before the bad guys came in. And that was his world. His family had this whole sort of whimsical teasing. You know that, uh, that famous phrase that it takes two people to make you feel bad about yourself? One person to say the cruel things and you to believe it. At one point when he and his sister were little, they built card castles. And you know how you can build a row of cards and very carefully you put a flat extra row of cards on flat top and then build a, another one on top of that. One time they went up to like two or three levels. His mother came in, whooshed them all over. And Einstein just took a deep breath, put his shoulders back and started building again. And he said, there might be other people who are better than math than me. There are many like that. But I have the obstinacy of a mule. That was good when he was young. He was really dashing to the women. Uh, When he went to university, there were uh, six guys in his class and one girl, one woman. And he said, she's mine. And lo and behold, they got married. Uh, His famous theory of general relativity, which we'll talk about later, took him 10 years of struggle to make. There was a brilliant mathematician in Germany who was much quicker witted, much higher IQ, who got the essence in two weeks. but Einstein uh, came out first. And the difference between them is that guy came out within two weeks, but only after Einstein had spent a decade just stumbling with these questions. What? Where does If I jump off of a diving board, I fall into the pool, right? So I feel that. But when I'm in the air, I don't feel gravity. Where does it go? Did the gravity disappear when I jump off a diving board? Something is pulling me to the ground, right? But when you're in free fall, you don't feel a thing. Where the heck is it? I'm using the word heck because we're we don't want to startle our listeners.
3: No, no. We don't want to scare the horses. And he so he had this gift of persistence. And yet, there were certain things in his life that he felt that he could make snap decisions about. Um, one was the fact that he rescinded his German citizenship, apparently, when he was 17.
2: Yeah, he hated the uh, the Prussian militarism. This is before the First World War. By the time Einstein was 17... Uh, his family had left him uh, alone in Germany to continue school. While well, they, they, they were poor. Uh, they were trying to get a job. So they, they went down from Germany to Italy for work. He was alone in high school. At one point, true story, his professor of Greek said, Einstein, you'll never amount to anything. Uh, and uh, and uh, Einstein's sister, who had that lovely German sense, German-Jewish sense of humor, wrote, and indeed... My big brother never became a teacher of Greek in a secondary school <laughs> in Germany. So that's the attitude. Anyways, Einstein was so upset with that and so upset with the sort of the brutalism in these Prussian-style schools uh, that he left Germany. Uh, he just walked out of high school. Um, and my similarity to
0: Einstein, I, went, I walked out of high school at a certain point. <laughs> so th- there is so much that Einstein does in his life, David. Um, but when he's 26, he has he has a miracle year. He releases four papers um, I can't pretend I understand any of them, even the titles, Katie, baffle me. So can you just talk us through what these papers are and why they're so important? Sure. Um, You mentioned the four papers, any one
2: of which uh, deserves a Nobel Prize. I'll mention maybe the most famous one, the equals MC squared paper. Should I do that? Do it. So the equation equals MC squared, it sounds like so weird. I remember when I wrote the book about it, I remember reading that uh, Stephen Hawking said, if you write an equation in a book, the sales go down by half. I thought, let me... (laughs) Bring it on, Stephen. Let me challenge you. What (laughs) if I put an equation... As a title, so the essence of the equation is um, uh, where it says E equals M. Leave out the the c squared. c squared is just a great big number. E Equals M saying that there's a the one thing is the same as another. It's that E stands for energy and M stands for mass. Energy is stuff like exploding piece of coal or a, a petrol lighter or something like that, and mass is like a rock or um, uh, somebody's skull or a table or you know whatever it is. And he said there's a like a little hidden pathway. Imagine there are two domed cities on the moon with a pathway between. You think you're in the realm of mass. You're there where there's rocks and stones and water and stuff. You can go through the secret pathway that I've understood, this little I've found for you, this little pathway of the equal sign, and you come out, not in a realm of more rocks and more potatoes, you've come out in energy, there's blowing wind and billowing flames. Now that's kind of neat. So mass can turn into energy, energy can turn into mass. But you think how come I never see it? You know, like I have energy. I, I, could, I could hold a, a match holding it in my fingers. You don't have like little miniature cities or Swiss mountains or Toblerone bars appearing there. So how? What? what is this? That's where the C squared comes in. Now, C squared's a number. It's a great big number. You know what a, a conversion ratio is between centigrade and Fahrenheit. You, I forget. You do this and you do that. You get a conversion between pounds and dollars. There's a kind of conversion between yen and the euro. So like... You take one sort of unit and you just convert it by something else and you come up with the other unit. So if C squared was equal to one, then you say, you know, a little bit of mass turns into a little bit of energy. If I have, I don't know, at the moment I am holding a pencil in my hand, this pencil would turn, a little bit of pencil would turn into like a little puff, uh, sort of like those old-fashioned photographers who would have a flat tray and a puff uh, would come up. And if the, uh, the the number C squared was a bigger number, suppose it was like a hundred, then I'd say, okay, a little single pencil wouldn't just produce a single puff, The when the mass goes through that tunnel and comes out of its energy, it might produce, whoa, whoa, that, that was a big one, right? It was like like a, the, the gas from a gas stove turning on. Well, it turns out, how big do you think the C-squared number is? Do you think it's bigger than 100?
0: Bigger than a million? Bigger, well, than, bigger than a billion? Bigger than a bread box. We need to do this, Katie, I think, in the style of the Price is right? Oh, okay. So I'm going to give you a number and you give me the higher or lower. Okay. I'm going to start you off uh, to make the game fun with 42.
3: Uh, higher. Hmm.
0: Uh, 1,000. Higher. 10,000. Higher. David? It turns out... 10,000 wouldn't even be
2: the rounding error. It wouldn't even be the toenail in it. The number is enormously big. Um, uh, C stands for the speed of light. It's just a a certain rate. And the speed of light is about 670 million miles an hour. Uh, About a million times faster than an airplane. Uh, An example of how fast the speed of light is, uh, uh, we're uh, sitting in a small studio uh, in London. Um, I'm speaking to uh, my lovely uh, uh, interlocutors uh, about maybe one meter away. Um, I'm making uh, sound waves, which are coming from my mouth. They're going across this one-meter table into their lovely ears. Uh, If somebody was listening to this live, I'm also speaking to a microphone, the uh, signal might be sent by radio to somebody from London to San Francisco or Australia or something. They would hear it before the people in this room hear it. So it travels at the speed of light. (laughs) a radio thing, is quicker than the 600 miles an hour of sound moving across this little table.
3: This is like stoner talk, you guys. Isn't it?
2: It's, that's exactly what I was thinking. So it's really fast. So if you have a big number, we don't have to go into higher mathematics, but if you if you square a number, it gets bigger. So you start with a big number, you get what's
0: technically in the literature called the humongous mother of a number. <laughs> <laughs> I wish, David, that we could make a time machine, of which more, I'm sure, later, and take you back probably to about 1994, because you would have been an absolute hit in the house where I lived if... If we could have called you into the lounge at about two in the morning, um, and just got you to do a, uh, some guest speaking, <laughs> it would have been an absolute riot. I got to tell you, if anybody who can has a
2: chance of getting there, it's uh, Einstein and time travel. Anyway, so c squared is just a huge number. So going back to E equals M e equals M, mass can turn into energy, energy can turn into mass, but there's this big number. So what it means is a little bit of mass gets multiplied by a huge number, and that's the energy that comes out. Suppose the equal sign in the equation is like a tunnel under a mountain in Switzerland or under a hill. You have like a, I don't know, a little child pedaling into the tunnel on a nice pink bicycle or tricycle. Da-da-da-da-da, that's a little bit of mass. What comes out the other side, if the tunnel is a straight line, if the conversion factor is one, then what comes out isn't a little child on a... Maybe a blue bicycle, but the same size. The the conversion factor is this enormous figure. It's in the many quadrillions and stuff by our standard units. So you have a little child going, and blah, blah, blah. what comes out is an exploding Krakatoa volcano with a thousand hydrogen bombs coming out at the same time.
3: I love that movie.
2: I'm holding a tiny pencil in my hand. This pencil turned into energy. Not only would it destroy this building and uh, Soho in London, and not only would it uh, take out London, but there would be a large gap in the United Kingdom where the south of Britain had been. Damn. And the North Sea and Atlantic would float in.
0: Just f- put that pencil on the table, please. Step away from that pencil. Yeah, Step away from the, the pencil.
3: Very afraid of that pencil. Now,
0: he
2: did that in 1905. Forty years later, he was uh, uh, taking a nap uh, in Long Island. He liked uh, yachting. And his secretary woke him up one day in August 1945, a woman named Helen Dugas, and said there's been a terrible explosion in Japan. Uh, the atomic bomb dropped over uh, Japan, turned a fraction, just a few grams of uh, matter, uh, of solid mass. It's changed him out of existence and turned him into energy. The flash bounced off the moon and back and was detected. That's how powerful it was. Mm. And that's just a teeny teeny a little bit. His secretary woke him and told him the explosion. He hadn't been involved. He was considered a security risk as a, as a left winger in the, in the Manhattan Project, but he knew vaguely about it. And she said, oh, professor. And he said, if I had known, I wouldn't have lifted a finger. If I had known this is what they were going to do with it, I wouldn't have lifted a finger.
3: Lifted a finger meaning r- write his equation?
2: Going back 40 years, yeah. So it turns out to build an atomic bomb, you need the... Lots of detailed engineering. You have to purify uranium, the stuff that's happening in Iran now. But you also need to know that it can happen. Sort of like if you're going to do any physical thing, you need to know it can happen. If he hadn't been the scout, if he hadn't shown that it could happen, who knows?
3: All right. Although other people, like you say, there were other people who were, you know, in Germany, certainly various scientists were pursuing it. So he loved to laugh. Um, He loved Jewish humor. A colleague of Einstein, his name is Abraham Pace, said that his laugh sounded like the bark of a contented seal. (laughs) And uh, he loved puzzles. He loved sailing. He loved playing violin. So it it sounds like uh, you know he he had a pretty good work life balance, all things considered.
2: Yeah, and and when he had affairs uh, uh, during his second marriage, he was always really really polite. And his uh, he had a, a second house outside of uh, Berlin by a lake. And his maid said, "Oh, it was I'm Einstein, uh, the professor, had such nice women over." Uh, and they were they were always like they'd be sort of educated people often into like the music or uh, stuff like that. And he was really nice, and he would never insult his wife by having an affair in front of her and stuff. Einstein always loved bubble baths. I, I remember when I was first <laughs> learning about when I was first learning about Einstein, everybody would say, well tell me things he did that I can do. And I said, well, he loved fresh strawberries and say, right, checklist strawberries. He had a multi, a brightly colored parakeet in his kitchen in Berlin. Uh, right, I, I get a brightly colored parakeet. He loves sitting in the bathtub and not doing work and thinking he should be working. I can do that. So we do all <laughs> these things. The problem is those by themselves, eh, it's not enough to be
0: Einstein. How did he come up with his ideas? Because I don't want to speak for you here, Katie, but if I were to try and come up with a general theory of relativity, I wouldn't know where to start. So does he have discussions with people? Is he doing great long calculations by hand using a pen and a notebook? Because there are no computers at this stage. Where does this, where does this wonder come from?
3: Yeah, what's his process?
0: Yeah, um, I think you can divide not just
2: scientists, but maybe artists in general into tennis players or golfers. I'm not the first person to mention this. The tennis player sort of person means, suppose you come in on Monday morning to an office or seeing your mates. I got this great idea, but I really want to work it out. Uh, can we, uh, let's meet for coffee later. I got to talk about it with you or let's take a walk. You got you to gotta bounce ideas back and forth. Another person with a sort of golfer mentality, uh, they come in maybe to the office on Monday or you come in and you see them with a bunch of friends and they say, look, I got this great idea. Guys, can you leave me alone? I just have to, just give me some space. I have to think about it. So you can divide up into golfers versus tennis players. Einstein was a tennis player. So he was always walking with people and bouncing mm-hmm. ideas back and forth. Curiously, that particular uh, aspect of Einstein, the fact that he was modest, he really hated bullying. Uh, one time he was giving a talk uh, in, uh, in Zurich um, and there was a, a woman was uh, asked some questions and somebody else in the audience started insulting her, which is in 1911 Zurich would happen a lot. Right. And he said, oh, uh, we don't do this here, like that. Ah. Um, and it, it, he hardly ever would insult somebody in public. But it's just he says, no, this, is, this isn't this is what we do. Just nice and quietly. And that was more humiliating than getting angry back and stuff. Right. Um, so, in fact, the, this thing about his modesty uh, actually is me- meant a lot for me. Uh, uh, after writing about Einstein, after the book Einstein's Greatest Mistake, I, I wrote another book. It just came out, The Art of Fairness. But the reason I wrote this book, The Art of Fairness, is I was once at a meeting with an obnoxious person from a bank who was really rich. <laughs> and there were a bunch of people talking. And he was really rude to people under him, a male and female, but especially rude to the women. And especially somebody bouncy and positive, he would try to undercut them. And afterwards, I said, why'd you do that? And he said, well, I'm much smarter than them. I have every right to. And I said, you know what's interesting? Einstein was smarter than all of us. None of us are at that level. He made an ostentatious point not to do that.
3: Particularly as Einstein suffered under the ultimate domineering thugs and bullies, the Nazis, uh, which precipitated him moving to America in 1933. Can you tell us what happened there?
2: Oh, yeah. Um, Well, in the mid-1920s, he had to go to uh, Japan for a year because his life was in danger in Berlin. And it was a real shame. the the university that was the best mathematical center in the world in the nineteen teens and nineteen twenties and early thirties there were two there was one in Poland and one in Germany the one in Germany was run by a man named David Hilbert who who wasn't Jewish and when I when Hilbert was a very old man during World War II uh, Bernhard Rust the uh, the Nazi uh, education minister was sitting next to him at a table and said Professor Hilbert isn't it wonderful we have made you expel every single Jew from Göttingen. What is mathematics and science like now in Gürtengen? Hilbert looked at him. He had nothing to lose. He was near the end of his life. His son had died, I think, on the Eastern Front. And he said, there is no science in Gertingen anymore.
3: I need a few moments to regroup and ponder this information. So uh, let's take a quick break and we'll be back with you. Hello, it's me again. I'm just going to interrupt the history scene to tell you about this other podcast you could check out because I'm on it. I'm cheating on fire. It's called .com, and it's the documentary series about the people of the Internet. And it starts with Wikipedia. Yeah, sure, it's just a little website, but it's not. Who are these people? The faces behind the screen? The brains behind the words? A place where people can come together and talk about the things that are important to them, we've just found a way in the wiki universe to do that. This is a hidden world and it is fascinating, so if you're digging the fire, you will love this. I mean, how could Wikipedia not
0: be corrupt at this point?
3: Search for .com and subscribe now.
0: How? I'm interested in what happens when Einstein travels further particularly when he goes to to America for the second time in 1930. And he is greeted in a way that I guess no scientist had ever been greeted before. There's a lovely quote where he's referred to as the ruling monarch of the mind. He becomes friends with Charlie Chaplin. He's stopped in the street. People want to talk to him. They want him to explain his theory of relativity in 30 seconds on the street. He is a scientific celebrity.
2: Correct. Um, I suppose the good thing about that is that you can have a celebrity who's famous for uh, taking his clothes off. And you can have a celebrity famous for I, I don't, doing something silly. If you're going to have a celebrity, let it be someone today, someone like, say, Sarah Gilbert, who did a world-changing vaccine at Oxford. That's a good celebrity. I remember noticed at the latest Wimbledon, people applauded when they were told that she was on the court number one. And that's good, rather than maybe, I don't know, somebody who's a, a trivial a TikTok uh, influencer or something. Um, so, in a sense, Einstein accepted that. He said, well, you know, most people won't know what the details are, but it might – funnel some people towards inquiry and science.
3: How did this fish out of water adjust to life in America? Um I read this funny thing That he wrote, uh, first of all, he found Americans, you know, forward thinking, optimistic, free from the societal constraints of Europe. But apparently after two months, he wrote that he alternated between admiration and head shaking.
2: (laughs) Totally, totally. Uh, His problem was that the sort of America America that he would have liked would have been, say, Greenwich Village. If he was going to be in America in the 1930s, it would either be like, I don't know, like solid Midwestern honest people for that stereotype – Uh, Or something like cool Greenwich Village, or maybe even there was actually curiously an interesting art scene in Seattle at the time. He would have liked that. Bohemian, young people kind of doing fresh, cool stuff. Princeton was so uptight. He wrote to a friend of his in Europe that being at Princeton is like seeing all these uh, 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 smug demigods standing upon stilts, strutting along Mm -hmm. back and forth. So
3: academia was not for him. He was more of a a boho figure.
2: Uh, Yeah. Well, he would accept the the best academics. Uh, Princeton at that time was really snooty. Also, remember at that time, American universities, they weren't a place you got into by getting good grades. You Got into them because your parents put your name down when you were a child. So Princeton had a lot of really smug, obnoxious, rich boys.
3: The FBI's J. Edgar Hoover started amassing files on Einstein starting in the 40s. Why did he do this?
2: In America, before World War II, it was a very conformist place, and if you said I'm a European social democrat, people didn't quite know what that meant. Hmm. Uh, Even if you had been a European social democrat. Uh, who hated communism because of its terrible dictatorship and knew a lot about it, it was kind of confusing. You're supposed to be a Republican or a Democrat. And to be honest, to most people, you're supposed to be a Republican if you were rich. So already Einstein didn't quite fit. And then he was an outsider who spoke his mind. He made a point of being in public with his wife. A lot of famous uh, men at the time made a point of keeping the woman far ahead, far behind. He 100% support of civil rights, black rights, which, again, most Princeton professors didn't really. Um, And also, he was always on the side of um, uh, trade unions.
3: Oh, and Uh, he was a pacifist as well.
2: uh, Yeah. In the 1930s, uh, pacifism was less weird than it uh, seemed uh, later just because of the memories of the First World War. Sure. So his view about pacifism wasn't the the biggest problem. I think the biggest problem was his... uh, The fact that he didn't quite fit, the fact that he was open-minded about social change, and the fact that he was really strongly on the side of uh, workers and minorities and stuff. J. Edgar Hoover in Washington, D.C., took it upon himself to protect America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, especially domestic, and especially who supported the underdog. So he got all sorts of people to try to find dirt on Einstein. Well, the thing is, aside from his having affairs, and as he got older, he didn't have the energy, um... There was really no dirt, um, but these activities were considered not mainstream American, at least according to Hoover. Uh, when FDR, Hoover,
0: Hoover was a, a crossdresser as well,
2: wasn't he? Edgar uh, uh, Hoover was, was a man who. Um, uh, who I don't incredibly admire, the the evidence of him cross-dressing uh, is, is ambiguous, and uh, even if he uh, dressed in a perfect suit and tie, I still wouldn't like him. <laughs> um, uh, his, his power went to his head. I'm sorry, we're rambling all over. Let me stick to it. So, Einstein was investigated because the uh, FBI thought he was a European lefty. And because of that, he wasn't allowed to work on the atomic bomb project. Um, That actually didn't hold back the atomic bomb project, whether Mm. it was good or bad, because he he was an older man by then. And uh, uh, by this point, uh, the atomic bomb project involved a lot of practical engineering. And there were excellent physicists uh, able to do that.
0: Mm. So you reference one of your books, Einstein's Greatest Mistake. What was that mistake?
2: Uh, Ah, you know that thing, you you often get cursed by your strengths. And so uh, Einstein's skill when he was young for about 20 years was his obstinacy. You know, he would stick right through it if he thought—so, for example, when he was at Princeton in the 1930s, he gave most of his income away to help refugees uh, uh, come to America. Uh, you, you know you know how it says in the New Testament, in the Sermon on the Mount, it's really important to show to share with those who don't have, unless, of course, they're actually poor and don't speak your language or have different colored skin. Oh, sorry, <laughs> it didn't say that. Oh, my God, that's the Tory party today. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um So, Einstein really took those things that, yeah, I I could live on less of my income. So, he was a good, generous person, and he stuck to that against a lot of people saying, don't do that. That's, you know, you're insulting to us. Don't do that. So, he would stick to his principles. Unfortunately, he got used to sticking to it, sticking to his principles. And after a while, that was really dangerous because physics was changing around him. You mentioned earlier quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics is the study of really small stuff. Um, And you know that if you hit a billiard ball on a, well, on on a billiard table, on a pool table, things go in a kind of quick way, in a a predictable way. I hit the white here, it bounces off there, da-da-da, and if you're me, nothing goes exactly (laughs) where you want, but it all follows the logical track. Well, it turns out people were finding in the 1920s that if you look at really small stuff, it's kind of not like that. Things don't follow so crisply one thing to another, Einstein said, well, obviously, that's what's happening. They're just Our our equipment isn't good enough. Our microscopes aren't clear. Our, we don't have the clear enough equations. But someday you'll find out clear explanations of how one thing leads to another, causality and everything. And at the beginning, most people were on his side. Turned out the evidence kept on staying like that. And one by one by one, people began to move against Einstein onto the side that said, well, you know what, on the tiniest level, on the quantum level... Things aren't as clear. They don't move as crisply and with the same causality as they do on the big level. And Einstein said, that's impossible. That's just an artifact of our lack of knowledge. Can't you guys see that? Clearly, the universe wouldn't have been created like that. And that's his famous line. He said, God does not play dice with the universe.
3: So he did not like chance, and he decided he knew what God liked.
2: Well, his friend, Nels Bohr, said to him, Einstein, stop telling God what to do. (laughs) But the reason Einstein stuck to it, if you've ever been in a... Both of you are are very articulate. But if you've ever, maybe when you're younger, been in an argument where you knew you were right, but you lost the argument. You were against somebody who was really deft, and and you're just irritated beyond measure. And you you can't win the argument, but you have a deep principle. For example, now in England, it's really easy to make fun of Donald Trump. Suppose you were surrounded, because maybe one or two percent will support him. Suppose you were surrounded by almost everybody who supported Donald Trump, and in a really calm way, they kept on pushing that line. It's really hard to fight against that. So, Einstein stuck out against this. He said, look, yes, these crowds are nuts, but there were crowds in Germany that were not screaming death to the Jews um, uh, and burning books and stuff. I, I stuck out against that. These people aren't mean, but they're... Deluded, in time history will show that I was right. Actually, in time history showed that he was wrong.
3: That's interesting. So he uh, chose to be rigid uh, in a field w- that really benefited from flexible thinking. So that's an irony there.
2: It's interesting, isn't it? For twenty years of his life, from about twenty-five to about forty-five, he could do nothing wrong. Uh, his eleventh greatest discovery. One time he was exhausted one weekend in nineteen sixteen. This wasn't a major work. Uh, he spent a lot of time in the bath and on the beach and stuff. He came up with the idea behind the laser. Mm. That wasn't even like his t- in his top ten. I mean, it's the guy was awesome. He was on a roll. Einstein had an intellectual capacity to do great stuff. When he was close to sixty, he came up with uh, something called quantum entanglement, which is probably how our next generation of computers will be will, will be worked out. So he had these incredible and, and, and things like wormholes and stuff. So he had incredible ideas, um, but his main work. He wouldn't open up to this because he said, "No, no, you, you I can't believe that God plays dice. The universe, please tell me the universe isn't arranged like that."
3: That is so interesting because that Tom and I always talk about people we know who have self-limiting ideas, friends of ours, and um, I mean, this is just an example of that where you tell yourself a story. Yeah, um, this is this is how it is. Like it's worked pretty well so it's far. It's really worked, and uh, there's no reason to, to change course. Um, But speaking of changing course, I want to talk about Einstein's look. Um, He (laughs) simplified his life, apparently, to make more time for work, Tom. Um, And one of the simplifications was apparently he didn't wear socks, David. And uh, he always wore a leather jacket because leather jackets don't wear out.
2: So uh, some of it was comfort against the skin. The other was signaling, you know, almost any bit of clothes... Uh, signal a certain way. Uh, you, Steven Spielberg will dress with, like, when he was younger, a sort of a dark T-shirt under a plaid, slightly open shirt. That means, oh, I'm a Hollywood director of liberal sympathies, blah, blah, blah. And there's different ways of dressing. We always signal. So Einstein's signaling was, look, I'm not a pompous professor. I happen to be good at this, and I, it means a lot to me. I'm getting as close to whatever deity there could be, but he wasn't
0: going to let these other trappings take over. It's like a leftover hippie. Mm. So the famous photo that we referenced earlier on his 72nd birthday with the white hair sticking up and the tongue sticking out. Does that actually reflect his personality? Oh, totally.
2: So that photo is cropped there. I think he was in the car with four people. And I'm not sure if if Flexner, I can't remember who that was in the front seat. If he was in the car with the head of the Institute, um, then it's like he's showing the cameraman. I am not. I look like this. I am so seriously not like this. Oh. If you normally wear, I don't know, jeans and a sweater, and you have to dress up somewhere fancy, and there's a guy like maybe your age and background who's like taking the coats or stuff, you want to stand in a way and say, look, mate, I have to wear this like silly thing, uh, this penguin costume. It ain't me. You know, you want to say that. So that's what Einstein was saying.
3: I love it. So getting back to Tittle Tattle, which is what I'm all about, um, the American actress Shelley Winter Tells a story that her old roommate, Marilyn Monroe, had a bit of a thing for Albert Einstein. And she says that the two of them were kicking around uh, at home one evening when they were ingenues and they were talking about like who their fantasy men would be. And Shelley Winters had made a list of names like Clark Gable and Marlon Brando. And uh, Marilyn put Albert Einstein On her list. And Shelley said to Marilyn, Marilyn, there's no way you can sleep with Albert Einstein. He's the most famous scientist of the century, besides, he's an old man. And Marilyn's reply apparently was, that has nothing to do with it. I hear he's very healthy. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: By the time Marilyn Monroe was famous, Einstein was, was really old, and he had a terrible uh, uh, um, aneurysm, not uh, in the aorta, but just below that in his heart. It's what, what he later died of and stuff. So he wouldn't have had an affair with Marilyn Monroe, and I don't know if they, if they met. I know there was a film imagining it, which is a great imaginative thing. However, what's an, an attractive thing about Marilyn Monroe is that like many uh, uneducated people, it doesn't mean you're dumb. It just means you happen not to have been properly educated. So it's, uh, it's very, very hard to get that across to people who grow up in this school system and all that sort of stuff. So she, she loved ideas and she was, a bright, she was a bright woman. She clearly, keenly
0: wanted to learn.
3: Mm, absolutely.
0: What are the other great myths with Einstein? And there's quotes that get attributed to him. There's stories that aren't real.
3: It's
2: funny that uh, sometimes when you want to give authority to something, you want to back it up. You say, and the person who you choose to back it up says actually a lot about you. If I say, well, you know, as Kim Kardashian put it, or whoa, you know, Steve Bannon in the White House put it, <laughs> it's showing you that I'm referring to those sorts of people. So I kind of like even these stories or quotes that are not true about Einstein. I still kind of like kind of like his fame. So uh, uh, there is a noted uh, Einstein scholar, Sylvester Stallone. Um, who in Rocky Part 1 there's a scene where somebody's getting motivation and the woman who plays his uh, I think his sister says um, well Einstein was a terrible student and so if you were a terrible student you can uh, uh, develop better. Uh, that's actually incorrect. He was, he was a good student. He's like a B plus student and stuff but it's still a lovely ideal. So the point of you know, yeah, if you had, you had a crummy background, you can overcome it. That's a really nice point. So that sort of story, I, I don't mind. There's another story that Einstein's wife uh, did his work when he was young, his first wife. She was a decent physics student at university, and she t- was training to be a high school uh, science teacher. Um and the 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 fantasy that she did his work uh, comes from. A, I think there was a Serbian nationalist writer in the 1960s who was really under communism had to play up the, the strength of Serbian women, and uh, she 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 didn't do his work. Uh, uh, in fact, uh, as Einstein's uh, son said, my father is Einstein. Who was going to do
0: it? Casey Einstein seems to live on in so many ways, um, obvious ways. So we uh, obviously in Billy Joel's song he appears. He's on the cover of Sergeant Pepper. But yeah, and Monroe. I think they're the only two from, from the crossover, the crossover of the beams. But he also seems to, to live on in slightly less obvious ways, but actually are really obvious when you see them. So when you think about Doc in Back to the Future, <laughs> yeah, he's even got a dog called Einstein. If you don't get the fact that here is this mad professor with these crazy ideas about time travel and space and physics with wild, crazy hair, his dog's called Einstein. Let's yes. underline it. A
2: powerful image like Einstein lasts because it lasts in several different directions. You can take of Einstein what you will. Um, you can say, oh, mad scientist, hair sticking out. We know this notion. Somebody who's different from other mortals and maybe they're dangerous or, you, or they don't have emotion and you can't take them seriously. There's another Einstein, photographs of him by the, the great photographer Karsh, really looking soulfully. Uh, what's he looking at? Einstein was against atheists. He thought, really? Nor did he, on the other extreme, he didn't believe in an interventionist God. He didn't believe in... um uh, the resurrection and he didn't believe that uh, Moses on Mount Sinai received tablets from God. However, he had a view sort of in between. Uh, the, the philosopher that he, one of the philosophers he most liked was Spinoza from 1600s, a uh, uh, Spanish Jew in, in the Netherlands or, or Dutch Jew, who had this sort of notion in between, a sort of not quite pantheism, but a notion that there are these curious forces around us. The world turns in a certain way, trees grow, there's lights moving. Somehow that happened. Was it set up? And if it wasn't set up, why did it develop in this particular pattern? And if it was a random pattern, why did we develop brains that find it really quite beautiful? What is it about uh, uh, the face of a human being or of a child? What is it about blowing wind through forest leaves that? attracts us. Our brain is about three pounds of fat and water squishing around in the dark of our skull. Inside our skulls, it's pitch black. I, at the moment, am looking out in a nice studio in Soho, but inside my brain, everything's dark. I'm just, that squishy bit of fat and water is imagining that all this is happening. So, how did this get set up? It's quite beautiful to imagine that. So that's the view that Einstein had. He wasn't an atheist. He was against that. But his view is sort of in between. It was a, he talked a lot about the old one. And it was a little bit of a metaphor, a little bit of a joke, but just a little hint of seriousness.
0: Casey, I think of all the episodes we've done, this feels the one where we most need to just, you and I go to a quiet room and look at each other for a bit and then just go, bloody hell, what about that bit? Well, <laughs> I didn't quite nail down the dot, 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 dot.
3: <laughs> the thing that is so heartwarming and life-affirming about learning about Einstein is that it doesn't seem like he was a man with an agenda other than delving into mystery and shining a light on it and helping, totally. helping other people.
2: I think there you really nailed it. So I mentioned when he was a young man, you know, sometimes as a teenager, age 1920, you can make friends in a way it's hard, it's not impossible later, but it's hard. You really open up. So this fellow Michaela Besso, he was really, really friends with. And Michaela died just a few months before Einstein did in 1955. And Einstein wrote to Michaela's uh, kids who, who are now adults. And he said, you know what I loved about your father? He was a good man and he was a kind man. But what I most admire about him was that he managed to make a relationship with one partner last his entire life. Something which I, sadly, have failed in twice. And that's the thing he felt to have those uh, those warm human connections while also looking at what is this world around us we're dropped in? The world of physics and objects, the world of love. What connections could he make between it all? That's what he liked to do.
3: Who is the Albert Einstein of today?
2: This, I think, is, is really central. Nobody looking around Germany in the late 1800s would have thought, Uh, the child of a despised minority in a small town in Western Germany was going to be the greatest mind of the next century. So who's the Albert Einstein of the coming decades? Probably a young boy or girl in the slums in Nigeria or in Malaysia who's going to have a certain amount of opportunity and the world will let them do what they can.
0: This podcast uh, gives us a rogues gallery sometimes, Katie. We meet some nefarious characters, some loathsome characters. David Badanis, thank you so much for casting light on one of the most lovable and likable of all.
3: Oh, David was so great. That was such a nutritional conversation. But I guess as you would expect in a discussion of a huge brain box, I am now completely intellectually Stunted. Like, I've just used (laughs) up every molecule of brain cells on this. So, I'm I'm making no sense now. That's what I'm saying. Yeah,
0: Katie, I feel the same because (laughs) Einstein is a massive brain box, clearly. Yeah. David is also a massive brain box. And I don't think that we have a certain amount of brains, but maybe our boxes are slightly smaller.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I liked how he kept talking about like the the three pounds of fat, dark fat in our head. Um, I think maybe I have four pounds of fat in my head, Um, (laughs) but just packed in a little bit more densely.
0: Yeah. He also gave us another phrase, Katie, which will stay with me. You remember a couple of episodes ago in episode 38 on Dacron, we got the name for our pretentious uh, prog rock album which was damp cloth utopia yeah we've now got the follow-up um, to our prog rock opus which is quantum entanglement
3: quantum entanglement that is a very complicated position in the kama sutra <laughs> is what i would suggest <laughs> you can really to you hurt your
0: back if you are of a certain age or you lack liveness so please do be careful <laughs> if you are going to attempt quantum entanglement at any stage in listening to this podcast please do warm up first
3: do warm up first, at least a a toe touch, maybe a quick jumping jack. Hey, if you want another podcast to listen to, you have to try American Vigilante. It's about this guy called Casey. He lives off grid and he saves kidnapped children. He is a very complex individual. He could save your life, but he could end it too.
0: Yeah, American Vigilante is true crime, but it's so much more as well. It's Rescue missions, assassination attempts, and last gas protection from the Mexican mafia. It's all the stuff, Katie, you hope never comes to you.
3: It's presented by former BBC journalist Sam Walker. So she's been speaking to Casey for months and she's recorded everything that he's told her.
0: It's shocking, it's inspiring, it's frightening, and it's thought-provoking. Search for American Vigilante in your podcast app now.
3: And while your digits are dancing across that computer screen... Why don't you drop us a line at fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk if you have something that you want to tell us, if you have some thoughts or ideas about an upcoming topic, or perhaps you'd like to suggest an expert.
0: And we are also on Instagram and Twitter. Find us at Spread that Fire.
3: I'm quite hot and bothered about our next episode, Tom Fordyce.
0: It's James Dean, Katie. We've done Marlon Brando. This is now part de of the All-American Hot Off.
3: <laughs> the sullen, sulky man in pain trademark
0: Crowd Network, a place where you belong.
1: Hello. the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation.